Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly, and this is an episode of Mama Mystery Headlines where we discuss the top headlines from the week. Today is April 14th. Let's get into it. The first story we're discussing today is an update in the Shanquella Robinson case. We covered this story back in episode 116, so if you haven't heard the full story, go check that out. But to refresh your memory, Shanquella Robinson was only 25 when she went to Cabo with a group of friends in late October of last year. While she was in Cabo, she and her friends were staying in this beautiful villa right off the beach to celebrate one of their birthdays. They documented the trip on their respective social media accounts, and the post displayed a group of happy friends drinking, playing drinking games, eating great food, and just seemingly enjoying themselves. But then tragedy struck when Shanquella was found unconscious from what her friends alleged was alcohol poisoning, or at least that's what her friends told her parents back home. Shanquella never recovered and passed away in Cabo. Her family was left completely shocked and confused, bewildered by the behavior of her friends, Her parents had a gut feeling that something just was not right. Their stories were not adding up. And then in a video that surfaced, Shanquella was seen completely nude and visibly drunk as she was being physically beaten by one of the friends on the trip named Dejanay Jackson. The video, which was taken around 7 o'clock in the morning, is difficult to watch because you see her being so viciously beaten and she's not even fighting back at all. And then her, quote, best friend behind the lens is essentially chastising her for not fighting back. At some point during the fight, Shanquella was knocked out and she never recovered. The friends eventually called for help hours later around 2.15, and when responders arrived, she was dressed and in the living room, whereas in the video, she was unclothed and in a bedroom. So clearly, these friends put clothes on her and then moved her to the living room. A partial autopsy was performed in Mexico where they listed on her death certificate that her cause of death was, quote, severe spinal cord injury with atlas luxation, which is essentially a broken neck. Her body was then returned to Charlotte, North Carolina, where the FBI requested a full autopsy as part of their investigation. So back in Charlotte, a second autopsy was performed by the Mecklenburg County Medical Examiner's Office. The forensic pathologist, Dr. Thomas Owens, ruled the cause of death as, quote, undetermined and noted that Shanquella had several areas of linear and geographical abrasions on the abdomen, pelvis, legs, and arms, as well as a focal abrasion with bruising and underlying subgaleal hemorrhage on her forehead. She also had abrasions on her right cheek and a scleral hemorrhage in her right eye. But Dr. Owens also noted that there were no fractures to her spinal column and no evidence of any disruption of the spinal column alignment or subluxation. He wrote, quote, based on the history and autopsy findings, it is my opinion that the cause of death in this case is undetermined. The most significant findings at autopsy are the hematoma of the forehead, the mild cerebral edema, and the hypoxic ischemic brain injury. The hematoma is consistent with blunt force trauma. The hypoxic ischemic changes to the brain are consistent with several hours of obtunded survival with inadequate blood flow oxygenation of the brain. 
He also claims that the reason for the discrepancy in autopsies is because the first autopsy that was done in Mexico was only a partial autopsy, and the cervical vertebrae and ligaments were not directly visualized to confirm a suspected subluxation. This really sticks out to me because how do you mistake a broken neck? How does how does that happen? In Mexico, the first autopsy, they say there is a broken neck, and then the one in Charlotte says there is not a broken neck. What would have given them the indication that there was some sort of subluxation or, or break in her neck? That just does not make sense to me, and I can't find anything that explains it. So um, anyway, that's your first red, red flag. But after reading the autopsy report, it also seems as though without sufficient history of exactly what happened that morning after the fight, it's impossible for him to say if her death was caused by the fight or by her possibly stumbling around and hitting her head after. He does note that she could have likely had a concussion from the fight, but since her friends reported that she was initially found unresponsive in her bathroom before they called for help, it is not known if she could have fallen and hit her head in the bathroom. Now, the thing to me is, is I feel like they're lying. The friends are probably saying that she was found in the bathroom to just to just cover their ass. I feel like that's pretty obvious. So why are we just believing what they are saying versus what the autopsy is actually showing, which are these abrasions and this these this evidence of a fight? I just don't understand how we're going to completely, you know, disregard that and take what they're saying. You know, they didn't even acknowledge that there was a fight to begin with. Remember they initially said that it was just alcohol poisoning. And so I don't know, I just, I'm frustrated by his findings in this report because after this second autopsy was, re, uh, was performed, the U.S. Department of Justice released a statement on Wednesday, just two days ago. In part, the statement re- reads, quote, as in every case under consideration for federal prosecution, the government must prove without a reasonable doubt that a federal crime was committed. Based on the results of the autopsy and after a careful deliberation and review of the investigative materials by both U.S. attorneys' offices, federal prosecutors informed Ms. Robinson's family today that the available evidence does not support a federal prosecution, end quote. So the buck essentially stops here. Mexican authorities did issue a warrant, I guess, or they they filed charges against Dejeuner, um, but the U.S. is not granting the request for extradition. So at this point now, we're just kind of at a standstill. They did acknowledge, the Department of Justice did acknowledge that if any more evidence does come forward, they will you know, keep it open and investigate that. But as of right now, they're saying there is not enough evidence or information to file any charges in the U.S. On Monday morning, five people were killed and at least eight others were injured after a 23-year-old armed with a rifle stormed into Old National Bank in Louisville, Kentucky and opened fire on his co-workers. 
Connor Sturgeon was an employee at the bank, but had just learned that he was about to be fired. He wrote a note for his parents and a friend detailing his intentions to go shoot up the bank. According to Connor's LinkedIn account, he worked as a summer intern for the bank for three years before joining as a commercial development professional in 2021 and then a full-time associate and portfolio banker just last year. When Connor was in high school, he was an athlete who played multiple sports, including football, but he sustained so many concussions during that time that he had to wear a helmet just to play basketball. So the big question here is, could CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy have played a role in his mental health? If you're unfamiliar with CTE, it's a degenerative brain disease caused by multiple repeated injuries or concussions to the brain. Many football players have suffered from this, and it causes aggression, mood swings, paranoia, and depression. Notably, Aaron Hernandez, who played the Super Bowl, played in the Super Bowl for the Patriots, was one football star who suffered from CTE and was convicted of shooting and killing his friend, as well as possibly two other innocent men during a night out. Junior Seau, who also played for the Patriots at one point, committed suicide by shooting himself in the chest in 2012, and apparently he did that because he wanted his brain to be studied, and he did, in fact, suffer from severe CTE, which was determined during his autopsy. Now, I've always felt that the issue behind gun violence isn't necessarily from just guns themselves or the incredibly easy way you can obtain a gun, but I think it's also a huge issue that mental health is not addressed or considered or questioned when someone is buying a gun. Um, And I'm confused as to why that isn't as widely discussed as just the issue of gun control by itself, but that's kind of a political issue and I try to steer clear of political topics on this podcast, but I just think it's worth noting since it seems like every week we do these headlines episodes, um, we're talking about a mass shooting and here we are again, you know, last week we were talking about the Nashville, you know, shooting at Covenant, uh, Covenant school. And now here we are another, another shooting from someone who is clearly suffering from some mental illness. So the victims who lost their lives in Louisville were Tommy Elliott, Jim Tutt, Josh Barrick, Juliana Farmer, and Deanna Eckert. And so as always, I want to honor the victims when we talk about these stories. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about each victim. Tommy Elliott was 63. He was a senior vice president at the bank and close friends with the governor, Andy Bashir. During a statement, Andy said that Tommy was instrumental in helping him build his law career, helping him become governor, and gave him advice on how to be a great dad. Jim Tutt was 64. He was a market executive for the bank, and he was nearing retirement, and he was so excited to spend more time with his friends and family. He was guided by faith in every aspect of his life as a husband, father, leader, and friend, according to his neighbor and friend, Chad Childress. Josh Barrick was 40. He was also a senior vice president and a beloved family man with two young children. He coached first and second grade basketball teams at Holy Trinity Catholic Church, which is, I I assume, where his kids went. In 2020, he was named one of Louisville Business First's 20 people to know in banking, and to know him was to love him. He was a friend to all and a devoted husband to his wife, Jessica. 
Juliana Farmer was 57. She was a commercial loan specialist and had just moved to Jefferson County three weeks before the shooting. She'd only been working there for just over two weeks. Her family described her as a beautiful person inside and out who would always be there to bring a smile to those she loved. Her aunt, Vicki Brooks Scott, said, quote, Juliana was a ray of sunshine, a joy to be around. She was a loving individual. She never complained, and she will never die because her memory will be in our minds and our hearts. Juliana had three children, Aaliyah Chambers, Demarius Dixon, and Jayon Chambers. She also had four grandchildren with a fifth on the way. Deanna Eckert was 57. She was an executive administrative officer for six years at the bank. She was a wife to her husband, Mike, and a mother to her two kids, Benjamin and Emily. She's remembered as being a rainbow of love, supportive and warm and always friendly, kind and smiling. She had many hobbies, but above all, she was selfless and found the most joy in pouring love into her friends, family, and everyone she encountered. Two officers were injured during the shootout, and one of those officers was 26-year-old Nicholas Wilt, who had just graduated from the police academy last month. Nicholas was shot in the head. He underwent brain surgery and is currently stable but in critical condition. The other officer is C.J. Galloway, and he was shot in the shoulder but still heroically managed to fight back, and he was the one who delivered the shot that killed Connor. So there is body cam footage of the incident that's been released. So the body cam footage is actually from CJ's body cam, and you can see him approaching the bank. And, um, I mean, it just blows my mind how heroic these police officers are that literally just go headfirst into a line of fire. They know they're getting shot at, and they don't even blink an eye. They just go right to it. And you see him get shot. I mean, it's from his body cam, but you hear the gunshot and then he falls back. He falls down to the ground and then quickly gets back up, runs down the stairs and kind of hides behind a bush. And so he's got this, this difficult angle on the bank and all he can see are these windows. And you know that Connor is behind the windows, but the, the sun is reflecting off the window. So you can't see Connor behind the window. And so... This all happens within three minutes. Um, at one point, Nicholas does get shot. It does not show that in the body cam footage, but um, from the pictures that I've seen, you know, there's pictures from outside the bank, and there's um, there's one picture that's been circulating that shows some blood on the concrete right outside the bank. I believe that is where Nicholas was shot. These two officers ran up to the bank knowing that they were going to be getting shot at, um, and that I mean, I just let that sink in because that just really blows my mind. But um, like I said, Nicholas is still in the hospital. The last report I saw was that he is still under sedation. Um, so I'm just hoping that he pulls through. I hope everyone pulls through from this. Two other victims are also in critical condition. Three others are in the hospital, but not in critical condition. And then three were released from the hospital. There's also been multiple recordings of 911 calls that were released from that day. And in one of the 911 calls, you can hear Connor's mom trying to alert police that her that her son is armed and dangerous and that he has these intentions to go shoot up the bank. And the dispatcher actually tells her they've already received calls from a shooting going on at the bank and that it's a dangerous situation and that she should not go there. And I just can't even imagine as a mother knowing 
that your son is doing something like this, knowing that it's already happened and that you're not even allowed to go to the scene because it is a dangerous situation. You know in that moment he's probably going to lose his life because he's committing this heinous crime. I just can't even imagine what what her her husband or Connor's younger brother are going through. Um, I'm not excusing what Connor did by any means, but I am saying that I just have sympathy or empathy, whatever, for his family because obviously they had no idea that he would be capable of something like this, that he intended to do something like this. It's just awful. It's an awful situation all around. And some of the victims have actually said that um, they feel for his family as well because they know that they are struggling with this and it's just a sad situation. There's no winners here. So and anyway, as updates come out, if there are any, I will be sure to include them in the next episode. A 34-year-old man out of Louisiana was sentenced to a total of 35 years in prison after pleading guilty to second-degree rape, two counts of molestation of a juvenile under 13, and sexual battery. According to the 21st Judicial District Attorney's Office, Ryan Clark's first 25 years in the Department of Corrections will be served without benefits, but he receives credit for time served. He will not be able to communicate with the victims. He must register as a sex offender for life and forfeit all parental rights to his children. The statement adds that Clark will also submit to chemical castration upon release. Now, I have not actually heard of a case um, where it includes chemical castration as the punishment, but it occurs when an offender is given a drug called medroxyprogesterone acetate, or MPA. The Justice Department says that a person undergoing this treatment is no longer motivated to commit sex offenses and is more amendable to psychotherapy that can enable him to reintegrate into the community. So essentially, this drug will suppress his libido. MPA is also used by women as a form of birth control or can be combined with other drugs as part of treatment for menopause symptoms. The use of MPA as a form of male castration was legalized in Louisiana in 2008 and is an improved form of consequence for certain sexually motivated offenses. On July 16th of 2020, the Tangapahoa Parish Sheriff's Office received information about potential indecent behavior between Ryan Clark and a juvenile that had lasted for over a year. The child spoke with investigators at the Children's Advocacy Center and was able to detail all the incidents, and during the interviews, detectives, detectives learned of a possible second victim. So Clark was arrested on July 17th of 2020 on charges of sexual battery and molestation of a juvenile, and then prosecutors later added a rape charge. He was indicted February 12th of 2021 on charges of first-degree rape with the victim under 13, two counts of molestation of a juvenile, and sexual battery. He pleaded guilty on March 1st of this year. The district attorney's office said that Ryan Clark was previously convicted of misdemeanor carnal knowledge of a juvenile after he received oral sex from a minor in public. So I've never actually heard of this as a potential consequence, but I think it's absolutely appropriate. He must 
subject himself to these shots. I'm not sure if they're given weekly or monthly. I know that they are intended to start at least a month before he is supposed to be released, but even that's not going to be for another 25 to 35 years. So I do feel like this is an appropriate punishment. Um, I, I think a bullet would be cheaper. <laughs> I mean, I, apparently it's like $4,000 a year to submit this type of punishment to pay for these shots. And I'm not saying it's not worth every penny, but I do think a bullet would be cheaper. Now, this last story, I had to bring Austin in. I know he wasn't here for the first few stories. He was just busy, but I really wanted to get his input on this last one because it's not, nobody got hurt in this last one. It's not a super big downer, but I just want to hear your take because I think it's kind of funny, maybe to me because it didn't happen to me, but okay. here we go, okay? On Tuesday, police in Eugene, Oregon, responded to a report of piles of cash being thrown out of a vehicle on the freeway. What? They identified a 38-year-old man named Colin Davis McCarthy as the man who was throwing money out of his cars to, quote, bless others with gifts of money. Let's go. Tons of people stopped along the freeway to grab the cash, which consisted of large bills. Okay, we're talking $100 bills. Just loose or like is it wadded together? Loose. Loose. It's raining money, okay? So this is like God's plan with Drake where he's walking around handing stacks to people. Yeah, except he's just letting them all blow away in the wind and it's all landing all over the freeway. Cars are stopping. It, it caused a huge traffic jam with cars pulled over vying for a chance to grab some cash. One witness actually said that some people were running from shoulder to shoulder of the interstate waiting for cars to pass and it backed up traffic for miles. Can you imagine that? Like imagine all these people just running around like what is going on and they're just they're grabbing $100 $100 bills. Off imagine the you're sitting in traffic and you don't know what the hell's going on thinking it's a wreck and then you hear later on the news that somebody was throwing out hundreds. Yeah. So Apparently, this guy, he later told authorities that he distributed about $200,000 in cash. No. But here's the thing. It wasn't even his to give, Austin. A relative of his told police that he drained his family's shared bank accounts and left them nothing. But because it's shared, they all had equal access to the money. So now... The family is asking people who found the cash to please return it to the Oregon That's State never Police. That's happen. What the hell? Why did he do this? I have no idea. But, like, the reason I laugh is because can you imagine asking people, like, listen, hey, if you found a $100 bill on the interstate, can you please go return it? Like, But do you know how difficult it is to get 200 grand cash out of the bank? Like, go try to get 25 grand out of the bank. They tell you to please come back. Really? Yeah, they don't keep that much money in the bank. I'm actually kind of surprised that the bank didn't alert anyone else on the account that, like, the money was being taken out. I don't know how he got it. He had to have done it over time. I just don't understand how he would have done it. Like, I I talked to a guy who once got 100 grand out of a bank account, took, like, 10 business days to get them to get the money. So maybe he had planned this for a while then. And they want you to have security if you're over a certain amount of money, like... Yeah, it's not a game. I don't know how he even got that much cash out. I have no idea. And when you said he's throwing blue bills out the window, I'm picturing, okay, a few, but 200 grand's a lot of bills. Yeah. That's crazy. Good story. 
I just think that's crazy. And um, I'm sure his family is pretty pissed. I mean, there's no way you're going to come back from that. Does his family have no more money? They're they're penniless is what they said. No They've way. They've been left penniless. What does this guy say? Is he like laugh about it? Is he an old guy, young guy? He's 38. And he said that he did it to bless others with gifts of money. That's all I know. Have I don't you know seen him in interviews else. or anything on video? Nothing. I haven't seen anything. That's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> You're Stop funny. asking me questions. Um, I want to know his demeanor and like how he is about it. I have no idea. I mean, obviously. Try to get him on an episode. Obviously, his um, his name was on these accounts, but I am a little bit confused as to like how he was able to get this money out without the bank alerting the other account holders. Like, don't you think that if I went to the bank and I was like, I'm going to withdraw all this cash that they might like say something to you about it. They would. Cause I have a tight banking relationship, but if you didn't have a good banking relationship, like if you weren't close with your banker, I can't imagine like, yeah, my banker would call and be like, Hey, just a heads up. Kelly withdrew <laughs> all your cash grand in hundreds. <laughs> I don't know what she's doing, but you might want to ask her. Yeah. But, but if you didn't, have a tight relationship with your banker, I don't think it's that uncommon. Well, especially if you banked with Capital One or Discover Online Banking. Yeah. And I have no idea any of the other details. That's all I know. He just withdrew the cash and just let it rain. Good story, babe. Crazy. That was crazy. So I guess it's not like, it's not a positive story. Usually I like to end these episodes with a positive story. This one just kind of like makes me laugh. I'm sure his family is not laughing, but I think it's also just a little bit funny that they're like, if you found money, will you please return it? Like, who is going to return it? Hello? Do do you really? Like, I don't have that much faith in people. No. I would be shocked if anyone actually returned some of that money. Hi, I was one of the people that found 600 bucks on the side of the highway, and I just wanted to give it back. Not going to happen. No. Is that it? That's it. Mama. (laughs) Mystery. Out. Bye.